who he is and what he's done. We're not what we ought to be. But the victory has already been won. Father, you desire us to enter into your victory, to participate in Christ's triumph over the grave, to walk in the newness of life. Lord, help us this morning to desire a life of worship. Lord, there's something wonderful that happens, that transpires in our hearts when we worship you. And when we view the mercies of God, we should beseech one another to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our only acceptable worship to you. Lord, this is what you desire the prophet said how will I come before the most high and he had some rhetorical questions shall I come before him with my firstborn 10,000 rivers of oil all the different lambs and bullocks and you responded I have shown you oh man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to love justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man glory in his might. Don't let the wealthy man glory in his wealth. But let him who glory, glory in this, that it's the Lord who exercises loving kindness. For these are the things that you delight in, Lord. To think that we can stand in your holy presence We've come to a mount, not one that physically shakes and quakes, that was so holy that even if an animal approached it, it was to be thrust through with a dart. But we've come into an innumerable, innumerable number of angels. We've come to the mount of the living God. We've come into your very presence. The veil in the temple has been torn in half. We are in the Holy of Holies, the true tabernacle, which is pitched in heaven, not made by hands. And for that, we thank you. We worship you. Everything that was lost in the garden was restored at Calvary. And we walk with you in the cool of the day. We commune with you face to face. No other hope other than Jesus. We thank you for all of that. In his name, amen. Let's stand together and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Answering the interlocutor that he's been doing throughout this book, understands that this is going to arise in question in the minds of his readers. And so he answers that question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? so that grace may abound. Since the more I'm sinning, the more grace 
has to abound to cover that sin. Shall that be the mindset of the believer? And his answer is certainly not, or may it never be. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in sin or in it, referring back to sin? Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ dies no more. No, I'm, my eyes are skipping here. Okay, I really need some bifocals, but I'm holding out. <laughs> Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Notice that? Knowing that he's been raised from the dead, he's never going to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives, present tense, to God. In the exact same way, likewise you also reckon, consider it, calculate it, impute it, think about it. Think yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. You can be seated. You know, all week long... couldn't quite figure out how verse 14 fit into this passage. And at the end of Sunday school, as a result of Ron sharing a few things about the law and what it can and cannot do, and the dialogue that he and Rick were having together, answered my question. What does this have to do with Romans 14? Or, or what does Romans 14 have to do with 1 through 13? For you shall not, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Grace is the only way to live the Christian life. We are saved by grace and we're to live by the grace of God that is supplied through our union with Christ. The law, it, it, it can't do anything to change behavior. Absolutely nothing. 
And the question, should I continue to sin? And the answer, you're not under law, it almost seems like that doesn't make any sense. If I'm not going to sin anymore, it seems like I need the law. That's what it just seems like, doesn't it? Common sense says that if I want to do right and I want to live right, you give me a bunch of more laws, and boy, then I can't go wrong. But in reality, just the opposite is true. You give somebody grace. And we read this morning during our Sunday school hour, Titus 2, 11 through 13, several times, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness, worldly lusts, to live soberly and righteously in this present age. Grace is the only thing that can teach us how to live godly, soberly, righteously. Grace is the only way that I can deny godly lust. I can't do it under my own strength by trying to obey the law. And so it cleared it up for me. So thank you, Rick and Ron, this morning on that um, this discussion. But it just seems like let me start over. These verses, chapter six, seven, and eight, they are the most practical verses in the entire New Testament. I read that this week. It's not original with me. I was talking to Dane and Dane and I both confessed neither one of us really have an original thought. He probably more than myself, because he thought of that. I didn't even think of that. I'm borrowing it from him. <laughs> but I read that this week, and I thought, that's pretty profound. And if it is so, we really need to study it. We really need to know it, because the, the Christian life is really lived out in these chapters. It's taking all the theology and now saying this is the reality of it. Another brother made this morning a comment to a young Christian, and he said, bad theology corrupts good living. But on the other hand, good theology should produce godly living. So we've got to know good theology, but then we've got to apply it. And that's what these verses do. It takes good theology, and then he starts to apply it in just simple, practical ways. The question before us is, does, is the teaching that justification is based on faith alone and God's grace alone, does that lead people to greater sin? If I give someone all the freedom of the world, will that, that just give them the opportunity to exploit that freedom? And if you are not unregenerated, if you don't know Jesus, absolutely. But someone who knows Christ, you can tell them to live however they want to. I was talking with Sheila and Tina a couple weeks ago when we had our meal over here and Tina made the comment to me she says after I got saved no one sat down and told me how I was supposed to live the Christian life I just did it I knew it and she said 
it wasn't because I had all these laws that I had to obey. She said, I just wanted to do these things. And that's the beauty of this passage, is it's explaining why we want to live for Christ, why we don't have sin controlling us. When sin entered the world through Adam's one act of disobedience, it resulted in shame, judgment, condemnation, but most importantly, it resulted in separation from God. Do you remember what he did? He went and he hid, and he tried to cover himself. That's the danger and the ugliness of sin is that it breaks fellowship with God. This is you and I's purpose for living. I talked with a young man this week who is going through great depression. Because this young man at one time had accepted the tenets of the gospel. And for whatever reason, he's walked away from that. And now life is meaningless. Life is without purpose. He's dabbled in all sorts of things. But it keeps coming back. I'm empty. We were created to be in fellowship and in union with God. That's who we are. We are image bearers of God. That is who we are by design. And God has restored that completely. And when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, this passage tells us that you and I, we were nailed to the cross. We were there. And when Jesus Christ came out of the grave, when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, we came out of the grave. We are alive in Christ. We are resurrected with him. I, I wish I had known this chapter when I was 20 years old. I think this is so profound. It's so simple, though. When you place your faith and you trust Christ that he died on your behalf, you receive his grace. You're forgiven. By grace alone we have peace with God. You have access to grace, to walk in. Salvation, you rest in His grace. There's a new fundamental transaction that occurs at our very nature of who we are. In Christ, He is our new representative. God's grace gift is given as a result. Where death and separation once reigned in our lives, now Christ and the new life reigns. God now views us as if we were placed in Jesus. All that is true about Christ is true about us. Now, does that mean I am not going to have to do anything in the Christian life, that I can just sit back and be passive and just wait for God to do His work? No. Does it mean that? Does it mean now that every thought is always going to be perfect? I'll never have any anger. I'll never lose my temper. Every motive is always going to be pure. 
everything that comes out of my mouth is always going to edify people. I'm never going to be selfless. I'm not, I mean selfish. I'm always going to be perfectly selfless in every situation. No. But the answer to that question is, the more I am abiding in Christ, the more I am in union with him, the greater victory I have. Sin is not your master. He has lost that right to rule. Sin is not your master. Sin is not my master. I'm under a new allegiance, and so are you. And what does it? The first thing that does it is the finished work of Christ. And that's what we've got to understand. So his question is answered, shall we continue in sin? And we've got to understand this word continue. It's really the word abide, meno, which means to abide, but it's a compound word, epimeno. And when you put a preposition on front of a verb, it is to heighten it. And the idea is, shall I just perpetually live in a state of sin? Because all the sinning, all that means is, boy, I'm just getting more grace dumped on me. And really, Paul says that that question is, has an inherent contradiction to it. You can't live in something that you are dead to. That's his answer. It's simple, but it's profound. How can we continue to sin, he says. How shall we who, what? Who died to sin live any longer in it? The word who, that little pronoun, is a pronoun that means you have had a nature change. It could be read, you who are of such a nature that are now dead to something, how can you live in something that you are dead to? It's an impossibility. Do you get that this morning? It is impossible for a believer to habitually, constantly live and practice sin. We read from 1 John chapter 3 this morning, 1 through 8, and it was almost a carbon copy of what he's saying here. His seed remains in you. He was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The one who practices sin doesn't even know God. So we can't continue in sin. And this is what Paul is saying. There has been a fundamental change in life. Now the word dead, I wish it meant that I was like a corpse. It's not what that means. The word dead in the New Testament is a figure of speech. And it's got two basic meanings. One, it's used in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, You who were dead in your sins have now been quickened or made alive. And here it's used in a same sense, in a moral sense and in a legal sense. So we need to understand, what does it mean to be dead to sin? Dead to sin is an idiomatic expression, and it's, really means I am dead in reference to all that sin can do. I am, in, I am completely dead in reference to all that sin has in its jurisdiction over my life. Well, what did sin have a jurisdiction? How, how did it control me? How did sin? Sin separated me from God. Sin brought guilt. Sin brought 
condemnation. How are we who are dead to all those things? I am no longer under condemnation. I am no longer looked at as judicially under God's wrath. So the first place, it has a judicial sense that I have been completely acquitted and therefore the consequences of sin no longer apply to me. Think about all the consequences of sin and they no longer apply to you. Now that's the legal sense, but in the moral sense, sin is a guiding principle that we live under its control. And when you have trusted Christ, you have died to sin as a moral principle guiding and controlling your life. That is a positional truth. It might not be a practical reality at all times, but in order for it to become a practical reality, we have to first understand the theological truth behind it. You and I cannot live out what we don't understand who we are. I don't know if that made any sense but hopefully it did. Now Paul, in the next 3 to 14 verses, is going to explain how that works out. So the first thing that he says, and I've kind of summed it up, we have been vicariously participating in Christ's death and resurrection. We vicariously participate. That's a big word, vicarious. It simply means that in experience, you and I were there. Not physically, but in a metaphysical sense, in a spiritual, I like that word better, in a spiritual sense, you and I vicariously died with Jesus. You and I were raised with Jesus. Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized. Notice the passive voice. I don't do this to myself. I don't merit this. I don't earn it. The passive voice implies there's an agent and the Bible is the agent here, but the agent is the Holy Spirit. For by one Spirit have we all been baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, and we've all been made to drink of one Spirit. At the minute of conversion, at that very instant, the Holy Spirit takes you and he immerses you. That's what the word baptized means. It doesn't mean he sprinkles you. He immerses you. He dunks you. And we were baptized. We were immersed. The Holy Spirit did this supernatural work into the body of Christ. There's a transfer from light to darkness, from death to life. That is the beauty of that. We were baptized into Jesus Christ. We were also baptized into his death. Therefore, I participate in his death. Because we, through our corporate identity in Christ, we have died with him. We also share in his resurrection. It's not only immoral to continual and habitually practicing sin as a lifestyle. Now, it can give you conviction. It can give you guilt when you continue to sin. But those aren't the things that give you victory over sin. 
It's understanding 1 John 3, 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now that almost sounds like sinfulness perfection, doesn't it? Remember, the original languages are so important. It's a present tense verb, and it is understood that those who are born of God don't continually, habitually practice sin as a lifestyle. It's a theological impossibility. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. The certainty of the Christ's resurrection is the same certainty that we are walking in newness of life. Now, I want to look, secondly, at our unity. We can't sin because we are dead to it. Secondly, we can't continue to practice sin because we are united with Christ. That's the second reason. And so Paul begins to explain that in verse 4. And I want us to look at all the verses that use this word with. It's a compound verb in the original language, but it's translated as a preposition in our English Bible. So let's just go through verses 4 through 8. Therefore we were buried, and here it is, buried with. That's one word in the original language. Buried with. So that's the first union. And notice it's passive again, and notice it's past tense. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Now, you don't see that in the English Bible, that word united together, but it literally means planted with. Now, some of you have got an old King James, don't you? And it uses the word planted, doesn't it? That is actually the Greek word. It means to take a plant and to graft a branch into it. And so verse 5 says, we have been like a branch. We have been grafted in with Christ in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, we've got another with, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with. There's another unity that we have in Christ. Let's look at verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now verse 8, we have the last with. Now if we died, and here it is, died with with Christ, and it's used twice in this verse, we believe that we shall also live with him. You see how many times with was used in those few verses? Five times, emphasizing our unity with Christ. So rightly understood, the finality of Christ's death and our death with him also ensures the perpetuity or the ongoing life with Christ. Our unity with his death and the finality of that, it also certifies our resurrection life with Christ. You and I were made sinners through the disobedience of one man. If you go up to verse 5 and 19, chapter 5, 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is Paul's point. 
you were in Christ's death. Just in the same way that Adam, you were made a sinner, and you received sin through him, opening sin to the world, and opening temptation to the world, and the world being a fallen place, so we are now in Christ. We are placed in him by faith, and we are forgiven. We are alive and fully participate in all of his justification, righteousness, and resurrection. Paul's point is that sin's hold and sin's, sin's claim no longer has a right to rule for us. It's been broken with complete finality. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him. Complete finality. Even so, we should walk in the newness of life. Our old man, the natural man who does not receive the things of God, our unregenerated self where sin and death reigns, we ratify this when we sin, but we ratify all that Christ has done by faith in his crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection. John chapter 5 and verse 24 says this, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes on him who sent me, he shall not come into condemnation, but he has passed from death to life. Our old man has been crucified. This old man who is under the rule and under the authority of sin, unregenerated, he has been crucified. The purpose of this crucifixion, let's look at the purpose of this crucifixion. Knowing that our old man was crucified, in the word that, in verse 6, it tells us the purpose. The purpose of our uniting in Christ's crucifixion, knowing that our old man, that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, the old King James uses the word that the body of sin might be destroyed. And that's not an inaccurate translation, but I think it kind of gives the wrong connotation and the New King James says that it might be done away with, and that's probably not as strong as it could be. And so there's actually sort of a, a middle ground. But before we get there, as we're understanding this purpose, let's understand, first of all, what the body of sin means. So when you were crucified with Christ, the body of sin. Now, I'm not exactly certain, so I've got a couple of ideas, and I'll share with you what that means, the body of sin. I think it probably means our solidarity that we share with the human race that is prone towards sin, that opened the floodgate when Adam sinned, death passed to all men, sin entered into the world. That is the body of sin, the compass of sin that we are all living in. And when we were crucified with Christ, all of that was rendered unoperable, ineffective, null and void to control us. The second idea of the body of sin, it also, and it may have a blending of both these meanings, the body of sin, it's this earthly tent that we live in. 
this earthly tent was crucified so that this, this earthly tent that I live in might be rendered unable to control and to dictate my thoughts, my actions, my emotions, my motives. The members that we have, they have been dealt with a death blow. And that's what the idea of this word kardageo, destroyed, rendered inoperable. It means a death blow. It means it's no longer efficient to do what it was intended to do. The body of sin can no longer have the ability to influence and control me. So that is the purpose of our being crucified. So that the body of sin no longer has the control and influence and this, this world which is compassed in sin no longer drags me down. Now, what is the purpose? I'm sorry, that was the purpose. Now, the result. The result is in the next clause in verse 6. Here's the result. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's what it results in. The word slave is the word doulos. It means someone who has absolutely no rights but is governed by another authority. And sin, whether you like it or not, that was the authority over our lives. And the result of us being crucified, we were there vicariously when Jesus was nailed to the cross. When Jesus came up from the grave, we came up with him. The body of sin no longer has the mastery, and the result is I no longer am in bondage to sin. This is such wonderful news. Verse 7 goes on to say, those that have died from sin can't practice sin. Paul is not trying to teach us sinless perfection. Dead, again, is a figure of speech that means there is no necessity now for sin. The word freed, let's look at verse 7. For he who has died, that's you and I, what has happened? He has been freed from sin. And again, I wish, I, um, it's, it's just, you know, language is an incredible thing. And, and I know that God used the Koine Greek for a reason. Because this word translated freed, it's only translated free this one place. Never throughout the, it's, it's the, the Greek word, dakeo, which means to declare justified. But this is a right translation. You look at any translation, and it uses the word freed, but that's, it gives us kind of a wrong understanding in English when we read that. But what it means is, is that you were completely under condemnation, and you're standing before the judge, and he says, I release you. You are acquitted. You now are freed. And that's the idea that Paul is saying. We are not freed just because we want to live how we want to. We are free because we've been acquitted, because we've been justified, because God now sees us as complete in Christ. And only those who have died can ever get to that point because we died with Christ. Our acquittal, our freedom, our release, it happened on the cross. We were there. We were crucified with him. And so that's what Paul is emphasizing here. Christ's one and final death makes our resurrection certain. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. 
These verses tell us that his death is definitive. Look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, death is definitive here, isn't it? What? He dies no more. Jesus will never die again, right? Okay, we understand that. What has no longer has dominion over Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for that he died, he died what? He died once, once for all. So in verses 8 through 9, Paul is emphasizing for us the theological reality of the finality of Christ's death. So everything that Jesus achieved on the cross, everything that Jesus achieved in his resurrection, we get to hold it. We get to possess it. Before Jesus, before we came to Christ, we were dead to God in the figurative sense. And we were alive to sin in a very practical sense. Now we are alive to God. And we've been raised with God, raised with Christ. So verse 8 starts with a conditional sentence, doesn't it? Now if, the word if is in the mood of reality. So it's not really an if question mark. It's to emphasize that we certainly have experienced this. It could be translated, now since we died with Christ. This is a spiritual reality. We are saved by faith, right? Every, no one would argue that. But I think there's a disconnect in the resurrection of Christ. Do we have faith that I am alive with Christ? I don't have any problem believing that my sin has been taken care of on the cross. But I do have a lot of problem believing that my sin has also been dealt with practically in everyday living, and I can only do that by faith. And if I have, I need to change my belief. I need to have faith that I am a new creature. I need to have faith that sin is not my master. I need to have faith that Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 is a reality. Therefore, being crucified with Christ, my body have sin, of sin has been done away with so that I am no longer a slave of sin. I need to walk on that by faith every single day. And that's what he's getting at in verse 8. If I believe this part of it, I have got to also walk in the newness of life. The other part of this verse, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, that's not just talking about future tense. It's talking about Christian living. There is a reality, yes, that I will see him and I'll be raised with him, but I think living with him, we will live with him. It's con ongoing. Okay, let's look at verse 9. As a result of Christ, as a, a resurrected Christ can no longer die. That's what verse 9 is really telling us. So he, did, he defeated death. He conquered death. He destroyed death. And he destroyed the one who had the power of death through who all their lifetime were subject to bondage. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and following. That's what Christ has done for us. When Jesus was on the cross, you know what he did? He became sin for us. 
All of our sin was placed on him. And at that point, Jesus was looked upon as a sinner who paid the price of sin. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God viewed him as our sin on the cross. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and he's coming back a second time apart from sin. Because he's raised again, Jesus is apart from sin. And you and I now are been raised with Christ, and we are apart from sin. It's no longer a part of us. It doesn't enslave us. Jesus identified completely, Jesus identified completely with the power of sin ruling over him. We don't think of that often, do we? But he did. And bringing him to death, that's what sin did. It's not that Jesus ever sinned, but he yielded his life in complete obedience to the Father to break with finality the power of sin over our lives. That's powerful. He identified completely with us so that he would break with total finality the power of sin over our lives. That's amazing. Now, you've got to accept that by faith. There is no other way around that. You've got to believe it. Verse 10. Now, we live to God continually. Notice the tense change in verse 10. For the death that he died... That's past tense. He died. That's past tense. Notice it was once and for all. But the life that he lives, present tense, he lives, present tense, to God. Christ lives for no other purpose now. When Jesus was on this earth for 33 years, he had a definite purpose. You remember every time that they would come to arrest him in the Gospel of John, and he would say, my time has not come. My time has not come. It's not my hour. But in John chapter 17, he says, now my hour is finished. He came for one purpose. He came to be a sin bearer, a sin representative, one that would bear all of our sin. Now that he lives Jesus is now living totally for another reason. He is living to the glory of God. He is seated to the right hand of God. In our old man, we lived and we were controlled by sin. When you and I are resurrected, now we live unto God as almost as if Jesus was living unto God. John 17, 5, Jesus said this, I have finished the work that you gave me to do, to be the sin bearer to nail everybody's sin, to identify with sin, to take their sin and to die to sin. Jesus felt the the horror of sin. He felt the reign of sin. He felt the power that it had to kill because he died. He fulfilled all that. He says, I finished the work that you gave me to do, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I'm going back to who I was and, and all the glory that I had. How in the world, how in the world can faith alone in righteousness alone through Jesus lead to more sin? We died 
the same kind of death to sin that Jesus died. We also share in this resurrection, totally living our lives out to God in willing obedience for his glory. Now, practically, what steps do I need to take? This is where it really gets practical. So we understand that deadness to sin means that all the judicial rule that sin had, I'm dead to it. It has no more influence. I'm also dead in the sense that it doesn't control me. It doesn't dictate my choices in life. I know that I'm completely unified with Christ. I'm unified with him in his death. I'm unified with him in his resurrection. My old man is completely nailed to the cross. I'm living with Christ. I trust that by faith. Now, what do I do with all that theology? The first place is I continue to remind myself, and I have a right understanding. The word know is used three times in this passage. Verse 3, so let's just read it together. Or do you not know? Put yourself right here when it says, as many of us, that's you. Do you know and do you understand that you were there? That's me and you. As many of us were baptized, we were baptized into his death. So I've got to understand that. I was baptized into his death. Verse 6, what else do I need to know? I need to know this, verse 6, that my old man was crucified. I need to understand my old man was crucified so that this body of sin, this tent that I live in, and this environment that I live in was rendered inoperable. It was rendered void of influence. I no longer have to serve sin. I need to understand that. I need to know that, and I need to understand it, and I need to live it by faith. Verse 9, I need to know one more thing. Verse 9 says, knowing that Christ died, having been raised from the death, dies no more. Death no more has dominion over him. I need to know that all that sin has, it doesn't rule me. It doesn't reign over me. So that's the first step. It's just simply good understanding of who we are in Christ. The second step is found in verse 11. Verse 11 says, reckon yourself also. It starts out with the, the conjunction of the word likewise. So what Paul is wanting us to do, he's wanting us to know all those things that are true about Jesus. Every one of those things that are true about Jesus he says, I want you to likewise count them up. That's what the word reckon means, to logically consider and count every one of those things up that are true about Jesus, and I want you to consider and logically think them true about yourself. Likewise, you reckon yourselves what? Dead indeed to sin. You were crucified. Your old man is dead. And now I want you to also reckon yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. So reckoning is a present imperative. That means I'm to start doing it right now, and I'm to keep on doing it. This means sin is not my master because Jesus' death and resurrection is my death, my old man. His resurrection is my new man's resurrection. The second step to victory is not trying harder. The second step to victory isn't by giving yourselves more laws. It seems so counterintuitive, but it's just reckoning and considering of who I am. So when you are tempted to sin, and every one of us is going to be, we must rely by faith in this truth 
that we are a new person in Christ who's been set free from sin's dictates. When sin comes and you're tempted, you look that in the eye and you say, I am not following you because you are not my master. That man is gone. That man has been crucified. The new man has been raised. And I reckon that. I calculate it. The third thing that we do, it's an act of the will. It's not just that we sit here passively. I heard this horrible counsel the other week. I, I get watching YouTube way too much. <laughs> I go to get something from information, and then this other one looks interesting. But actually, it was a pastor giving someone counsel. And he was saying, if God hasn't effectually and irresistibly told you to stop doing that horrible sin, then you just need to wait and pray for God to do that. That's not biblical Christianity. I think, why didn't you go to 1 Corinthians? There hath no temptation taken you, but just as common to man. But God is faithful not to tempt you above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also give you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Resist the devil. He doesn't say wait for some kind of irresistible supernatural. It is supernatural. But I don't, I don't sit here waiting passively for God to do something that he already commands me to do. He says, draw near to God, right? And he will draw near to us. He says, mortify the deeds of the body. Put to death the sins of your members. That's what you and I are to do. And we do that by faith. So we are, it's an act of our will, but it's not based on me willing it up. I'm acting on the will because I am united with Christ. That's the difference. The present imperative found in verse 12. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its lust. I deny it. I yield my will. I'm not going to do it. Now, now this is sort of paradoxical, isn't it? And what I mean by that is that I'm not going to let sin rule me. I'm not going to let the mortal body tell the new man what to do. And the Christian life really is kind of a paradox at times because we are dead to sin, right? But yet we live in mortal bodies. We are alive to Christ, and yet we still live in our mortal bodies. We are fully justified yet we're still in progress in continual sanctification. We live really in two realms. We are strangers on this earth, yet we are citizens in heaven. I had a brother write me this morning and from Ireland, and he said, Pat, he says, I feel like I'm at a bus stop. And he said, I'm on the busy streets. And I'm going from one place to another. And my spiritual home that I'm waiting for is so glorious. But right now, I'm in this, this station of life where God has got me. And so the fourth and final step of victory is we start new initiatives. Verse 13, don't present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, 
but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So to present your members, this again is a command. It's daily offering yourself before God so that you can abide continually in his presence. I present myself, God. I want to abide in the vine today. I am no longer going to yield my will to temptation. I'm going to reckon up all who I am in Christ. And finally, when we do this, we have a total new outlook. Replace yourself now at God's disposal as someone who's alive from the dead. You place yourself in his hands for his tool of righteousness. Just as Jesus raised from the dead, he continually lives for the glory of God. We present ourselves for that same reason. So this is my prayer for every one of us today. My prayer is that you will consider this one thought this week, a simple thought, and look sin in the eye this week. And if you have to say it out loud, go ahead and say it out loud. But say this, or in your heart, sin, you are not my master. You're not my master. You know what? I, I've tried it this week. <laughs> I have, because I was going to ask you all to do it. And all I had to do was say those words. And you know what? The temptation was gone. It, it was miraculous. I, I can't tell you how many times I said it this week. Maybe my wife saw a little bit of difference in my behavior. I hope so. <laughs> but I wanted to say something. I wanted to do something to one of my kids this week. And I, and I said, Sin, you're not my master. I just, that quick. So if you get nothing out of this sermon, at least do that. Far from grace as a license to sin. That was grace. That wasn't law. When I said sin, you're not my master, that wasn't some kind of law that I had to obey. That wasn't I'm going to try better next time. Or I'm going to put all these rules in my life. No. Sin, you have been broken. You are not my master. I have been crucified with Christ so that the body of my sin might be destroyed, done away with, so that I no longer am a bond slave to sin. You're not my master. So I want you to say that this week. When you are tempted to sin, you are not my master. Jesus is. Second thing, maybe this will help you, I want you to consider all of your union with Christ and what is accomplished. Consider that. Just reckon it. Verse 11, reckon yourselves. Everything that Jesus has accomplished, he accomplished it for you because you were there vicariously with him. Third, consider your old self to be dead, and so don't let it in the door of your heart. Slam the door on him. Then, lastly, Present yourself. Say, God, here I am. I want to abide in Jesus. I want to be like it says in verse, if I can find it, united. Mm. Well, anyway, it's in here somewhere. United. What verse is it? Someone help me out. Okay, verse 5. I've been united together. That means I've been planted I've been grafted in. 
I am a branch. And I have been united. I have been grafted into the life of Jesus. And that's where I want to abide. Now, Tracy and I have got fruit trees. And last summer, we tried to give all the pears away that we could because that thing just produced and produced and produced. But what I did at the beginning of the summer, I did, I haven't done in a long time, is I went out and I, I pruned that, those, those pear trees. And it's, a, it's not fun to do that because I, I have to literally climb up in the middle of it and sit on top of it. But I got rid of all of those branches that were useless. And in John chapter 15, Jesus tells us to do the same thing. I got under a lot of conviction this week. I've got on the top of my spiritual journal, use your time wisely. And I thought about all the hours that I wasted this week that I could have been abiding in Christ. That is the real source of fruitfulness. It's our complete union with Jesus. I was talking to my son this week. And I hate to use my family's personal illustrations, but to get my point across, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I gave him his Bible, and I placed it on his desk. I said, Brennan, here's your Bible. I want you to be, be reading it this week. You know, just get back into your habit. And I came back in about three days later, and the, the Bible hadn't moved. It was exactly where I said it. And so I thought I was going to have this little spiritual talk with him. And I was putting him under the law. And I was expecting him to do it because I commanded him to do it. And he very nicely said to me, he says, Dad, you know, I do have a Bible on my phone. And it's not because Dad is walking around haunting and making sure and checking off the box. You did it. That's law. Grace says, I've got Jesus in my life, and I open it up and I read it all sorts of times during the day. That's abiding in Christ. Now, it does mean that I have to yield myself. It does mean that I have to present myself. But I present myself in all that Christ has completed and finished on our behalf. So I hope this is practical this week. I hope it'll give you a new perspective on sin. And I hope you have victory. I hope we are holier because of studying this chapter today. So let's pray that in. Father God, I know I did not even close to doing justice to this passage, Lord. 
So I pray that the Holy Spirit, not by law, not because they have to, but I pray that people will just take this passage and they will meditate on it. They won't sit down and say, I've got to do this. Maybe they'll just sit down in the morning and just open it up and, and understand all those words knowing about who they are. God, God, help us to find Help us to find that balance in the Christian life that, that so many of us stray from. We are free in Christ, but freedom doesn't mean licentiousness. Freedom means I can be all 